In Gethsemane, there's a short, there's the short prayer there where it's not my will but yours. Okay, there's the on on the Calvary when he on the cross when he says, "Father, forgive them for they know not what they do." Um, those sentence utterances um, into my hands, I commit my spirit. He prayed and then he died. So there are a couple places. Any other places? Yeah, that that was in, in Gethsemane and Luke. It tells us he was sweating like blood and he was. All we know, he said there, was um, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. At the tomb of Lazarus. Now, here's an interesting thing about the tomb of Lazarus. He prays, why? So that everyone can hear him, right? Is to build their faith. And so it's a very short prayer, but it's that Lazarus would come forth. One other time I'm thinking about that the words to a prayer are spoken by, by Jesus. Yeah, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, here's an interesting thing about that. You could just, you could say that he's really not praying there, right? Because he says, when you pray, kind of say something like this. Now, that's not doesn't mean that it's not a valid prayer. What what you could say is he was just showing them how to pray, and so that wasn't his actual moment of going to the Father. He was saying. More like a sermon. Like if I were going to preach a sermon on prayer, these are some things you can pray. John 17 is an extended dialogue between Jesus and the Father. And when we think about these last 24 hours in Jesus' life, we talked last week about he stopped and spent time with his friends. So he, he took part of this time that he was going to do, and what he did is, I want to spend time with the people that I care about the most. Now, what did we talk about last week he did with them? He washed their feet, right? He, he sat down, he served them, he showed them what humility was like. He uh, gave them instruction about what, uh, what that meant for their lives. He talked about how they were to serve one another. So he finishes that. And then in John chapter 14, we're not going to go 14, 15, 16. But we, you can kind of look, if you've got your Bible open to 17, just kind of look back through to chapter 14. Because we're going to see some pretty important teachings that he does. We just aren't going to cover those. We're going to be in 17. If you see there, he talks about in chapter 14, this is the famous, don't let your heart be troubled. Uh, You believe in God, believe also in me. Um, Where I'm going, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And Thomas says, we don't have a clue how to get there. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And they say, well, please don't go away. And he says, well, if I don't go away, then the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, can't come. And so he talks about what the Comforter is going to do, what the Holy Spirit's going to do. Chapter 15 is the vine and the branches. That um, I'm the vine, you are the branches, you remain in me, and then you'll be able to grow, you'll be able to survive, you'll be able to thrive, is the idea. At the end of chapter 15, he talks about the fact that because they follow him, they're going to be hated. Uh, that because the world has hated me, they're also going to hate you. And in verse 16, he also talks about the Holy Spirit again. He's reminding them, I'm going to send another. Uh, there's a counselor that will come to you. And in verse 17, um, I mean, in verse 17 of chapter 16, he talks about uh, that he's going to go away, but that they should be encouraged because when he goes away, their joy is going to be made complete. Okay? So you have, those are pretty important teachings in those few verses. And so he talks, he washes their feet, he gives them final instruction, and then chapter 17 is an interesting chapter because I believe what it is is a couple of things. It, it transitions 
it transitions the story from the upper room with his disciples to the garden where he's going to be arrested. It transitions the story from teaching moment to Jesus' final acts of sacrifice. And it transitions from Jesus spending time with friends that love him to being completely rejected by all those that are around him. And he does it with a prayer that it appears he speaks aloud for all to hear. One commentator writing over a hundred years ago said this. No attempt to describe the prayer can give any idea of the sublimity of it, of its pathos, how it is touching yet exalted, and how it is at once tender and yet triumphant. Here's what we realize when you look at the last 24 hours of Jesus. The first thing he did is he said, I want to spend some time with the people that are close to me. But the second thing he did was that he prayed and he submitted to the will of God. He wanted to make sure what he was doing was God's plan and will for his life. And he went to the Father in prayer. What is unique about this prayer? It's not its form or its literary associations or how it links to other things or the words that are used. What is unique about this prayer is who offers it and when he does. Now, there's some dispute out there about whether or not this is the garden prayer. There's some people who say, well, it can't be the garden prayer because um, he, it doesn't say anything about uh, suffering. It doesn't say anything about the, the, the sweat being like blood. It doesn't say anything about his agony. It seems like he's just, when you read it, it sounds like he's just kind of saying it. There are others that say, It can't be the garden prayer because it says it came right after the teaching. And so he's still in the upper room. There's some that say it's in the upper room. There's some that say it's in the garden. There's some that say it's on a walk to the garden. Here's what I say about that. It doesn't matter. There's some people that say it's got to be the garden prayer because that's the only prayer. And I I think, how ridiculous does that sound? Jesus is in the last few hours of his life. You think he's going to pray once? I mean, we had a, a small incident yesterday. Susan, we ended up having to take her to get uh, evaluated medically because she was in some pain. And um, it turned out she's fine and she's going to be perfectly okay. There's nothing major there. But, you know, driving to the doctor, driving to the hospital, you, you don't know what's going on. Do you think I prayed once? Like, Lord, take care of her. All right, I'm done. You're on your own now, Susan. Doctors, everybody, you're good. No, we prayed repeatedly. Right. And so to think that Jesus kind of said, well, here's my prayer and I'm done. I've done that. I don't think that's. I think it's naive. It doesn't matter when it was given, except we know it was given between the time of the Passover meal. And the arrest. Chapter 18 you can turn there just for a second. I mean, immediately after this in chapter 18, John. John gives a lot of detail to a lot of things. But in chapter 18, all he says immediately after this prayer says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left his disciples, crossed the valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove. He and his disciples went into it, and Judas betrays him. That's the whole thing he gives. And so what you have is John giving this prayer that either said in the upper room, on the journey there, whatever it is, it's, the last thing we have recorded of him with his disciples before the betrayal in the book of John. 
So what is unique about this prayer is who offers it. It's the incarnate Son of God. He's returning to the Father by the route of a desperately shameful and painful death. He prays that this course on which he has embarked will bring glory to God, and that his followers in consequence of his own death and exaltation will be preserved from evil for the priceless privilege of seeing Jesus' glory, all the while imitating in their own relationship the love that is found between Jesus and the Father. It's a deeply theological prayer. But what you get out of it is this sense of the sheer love that Jesus has for these guys. Let's read it together. John chapter 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those who have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. I gave them the words you gave me. They accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but just for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. Glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them. I kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so the Scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. They are not of this world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you have taken them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be sanctified. But my prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be as one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. A couple of things to think about before we kind of dive into it. 
is one of those prayers that different than the, the, the model prayer or the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching them how to pray here, but you get the sense that he's intimately praying to the Father. That what he does as his final act of teaching with these disciples as a group is that he lets them in on a private conversation between he and his dad. In fact, he uses the word Abba several times in here. There's a couple of places where it's kind of interesting the way he uses it because he says, Holy Father. Now, to us, that sounds like that's not a big deal, but Holy Father, the word there for sanctify is like the most set-apart holy. Uh, it, it would be like um, something that was holy was, was considered set-apart, but it was also considered to be like high society, like like untouchable, unapproachable. Okay, If something was holy, you couldn't get close to it. Um, it was like a, the fine china in my granny's house. You didn't go close to it. You know what I, I mean? Have you ever been to one of those houses that you don't know how people live in it? Because there's too much stuff that can break in it. When I was, I mentioned, um, I've mentioned a couple of times to people in Ripley that were these great saintly ladies. And I remember one of them wanted me to come visit her one day. And I, I said, well, I'm keeping Eli today. And Eli was like three. I'm keeping Eli today, and so I'm going to have to bring him, but I'd love to come by and see you. They, she wanted to give me something. I said, I'll be glad to come by, but I'm going to bring Eli. And it was like, I mean, you've heard the bull in a china shop. It was like that, all right? Eli in this place, and the moment we walked in, on the coffee table were all kinds of antiques. You know, like stuff I don't have enough insurance to pay for, all right? And I just thought, man. That's that kind of the idea of, of what that holy word meant. It was like you couldn't touch it. You couldn't be around it. And then the word father is the most tender word that a child used for their dad. The ultimate sign of approachability. It's almost like he says, the unapproachable, approachable one. So you have this intimate conversation between Jesus and the Father. And what he teaches us in here is the importance of what prayer should be about. And the first thing he shows us is that Jesus prays for his glorification. Now, it's different to pray for his glorification than for us to pray for ours. What he's praying for is that God would redo what was already been done. That he would undo in some ways what Jesus had experienced in the incarnation of coming to be one of us. Once we get here in chapter 17, we get this idea that, that Jesus realizes his hour has come. I mean, he says it again. We talked about it last week. He says it again. After Jesus had said this, he looked to heaven and he prayed. Now, there's an interesting thing here that, that when we pray, oftentimes we do what? We bow our heads. Jesus often prayed. He lifted his head to talk. And it says that he lifted his head and he says, Dad, the time is here. It's time. And then he says, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. It, the interesting thing here is the way that word should be interpreted. The word glorify there doesn't mean, like sometimes we talk about glorify, we think of singing or praise or giving honor. The word glorify there literally means to be clothed in splendor. It's the best understanding of it. And so what he's saying is, Father, restore me to the splendor of who I was 
before I came to this earth. Now, he says that in verse 5, right? Break me to the glory I had before this world began. The idea is from John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so you had previous all this stuff. And what he's saying here is, I gave up a lot of stuff to come here. He did. For all eternity, he had had no limits on himself except what was inherent to his own character. And he was put into a very vessel that is limiting. We have limits on our bodies, right? Right? Only things that we can and can't do. Luke is in the why stage. Why everything. And lately it's been on why he can't do certain things. Why can't Daddy, why can't I jump real high? Well, you'll get to where you can jump. You know, he's got limitations. Now, Jesus was the limitless one. And he gives that up for a time to be limited. So when he says, Father, the time has come. And it is time for me to be restored. Restore me to who I am. Now, what was going to have to happen for him to be restored? He was going to have to die, right? This isn't the low point. He's not at the low point yet. I love good um, action-adventure movies. The kind where chases happen and uh, the guy's trying to get away or they're trying to discover something or a really good mystery, especially if the wrong person gets framed and they're trying to prove themselves innocent. I just like that. And in the midst of all those stories, there's always a moment when you know it's a movie, so it's going to end well. When it seems there is no possible way for the hero or heroine to escape. In a great story, there seems like there's no possible way they could ever overcome whatever it is. They're trapped. The walls are closing in. um, They're falling down a hole. They're hanging by a finger. And there's no possible way, even though you know the story's going to end good, so there's got to be a way, but you can't figure it out. Jesus is squarely looking into the lowest point imaginable. Nobody had come back from the dead in their own power. Nobody. Right? Who came back from the dead? Lazarus, right? How'd that happen? Jesus. Nobody had come back from the dead. In their own power. There had been a little girl. There had been life. Even prophets had done that. Right? Had the prophet raise the widow's son. I mean, you had... But nobody on their own had come out of the grave. So when he went into the tomb, and he knew when he went into the tomb, he was preparing these guys as much as he could because he knew death was on the horizon. That wasn't the end, but they were all going to think, there's no way he's getting out of this one. But he says, even though it's the most horrible thing you can imagine. It's time. Here's what one scholar wrote. The very event by which the sun was going to be lifted up in horrible ignominy and shame was that for which he would be praised around the world 
for men and women whose sins he bore. The petition of Jesus here asked the Father to reverse the self-emptying entailed in coming to this earth and to restore him to the splendor that he shared with the Father before the world began. The hideous profanity of Golgotha, of Calvary, means nothing less than the Son's glorification again. He says, Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you. He then gives this little bit in in verse 3. Some scholars don't even deal with this much. Some people don't even really deal a whole lot with it. But verse 3 is this interesting thing where in the middle of everything else he says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In the Old Testament, we've observed this integral element of the promised new covenant of God's people, and that from the least to the greatest would know Him personally and without an intermediary, without somebody to go between. So in the Old Testament, God's people struggle because of a lack of knowledge of God. And Habakkuk even says, there will be a time when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. And so what Jesus is saying is, now is the time for your people to be connected to you through me. And eternal life is much more than just when we die, we get to go to heaven. Eternal life is here and now, knowing God. To know God is to be transformed and be introduced into a life that could not otherwise be experienced. It's not just some kind of head knowledge of who God is. Knowledge of Jesus Christ is the ultimate access to the knowledge of God. It's not merely intellectual. It's not mere information. It means that the knowledge of God and of Jesus will result in fellowship, trust, relationship, and faith. And so he prays, first of all, Lord, glorify me so that these people can understand who you are. Notice that even in Jesus saying glorify me, it is the most unselfish prayer you could imagine. Because his glorification was going to be death on a cross so that you and I could have access to God. That's about as unselfish as you can get. Here's the second thing. He prays for his disciples. One of my favorite parts of this, and it sounds kind of cruel to say this is a favorite part, is when he says, I'm not praying for the world right now. I'm praying for my guys. Right? I mean, it's almost like... um, it's, I mean, Jesus is not like this, but, but you get those people that feel like they've got to cover, I mean, they've got to, that something deeply personal has happened in their own life, and, and they feel like, well, I've still got to take care of everybody else. Jesus says, right now, I'm going to pray about other believers in a minute. I'm not praying about the world. I'm praying about my guys. These are the guys you gave me. These are the guys you entrusted to me. First of all, I'm going to give them back to you. They're yours, God. They, they were never mine. They're yours. They're ours. And I want you to protect them. It's interesting. He uses the word protect there. And literally it means to, to put a hedge around or to, or to watch over or to keep them to your truth or to keep them to your name. When he says protect there, there, he doesn't mean make sure they don't get cut up a little bit. Because if Jesus' prayer here is that they never get physically harmed, it was a prayer that failed miserably. What he prayed here was, 
that they would stay faithful no matter what happened. Any of you in here ever dropped a child off at college? I've never dropped a child off at college. Eli's not ready yet. But I've been a child dropped off at college. You almost get the sense here that Jesus is dropping the guys off at college. I've seen my dad cry a total of about five times in my life. We received some bad news one time, and it was deeply emotional, and he got upset. And at the birth of all of my kids, he's teared up a little bit. He about boohooed when he left me in that college. And here's why. It wasn't just, I mean, I was in Jackson. He was in Dyersburg. It wasn't like, if, it wasn't like you know, I was going to Spain somewhere. <laughs> yeah. No, it didn't, it didn't cost him anything. It wasn't the cost. It was just that sense of, um, is he going to be okay? You know, the... the Somebody compared it one time. We talked about it one time. You know, when I was living at home, I never worried about whether the lights are off or on when I went to bed or whether the front door was locked. That, I, I didn't care. My, who, why? Because mom or dad were going to take care of that. Jesus basically says, Lord, I've taken care of these guys while I've been here, but I ain't going to be here. They don't have to take care of themselves. Protect them from the evil one. I've been able to say to Peter, Peter, get behind me. That is not what you ought to be thinking. I'm not going to be here to do that anymore. Protect them. You sense this real compassion and concern and love for these guys. This desire to say, listen, they're going to get roughed up. I mean, these guys are going to have it rough. I mean, literally tra- translated, this says, keep them in your name. Keep them loyal to your cause. Keep them constantly on the path. Now, here's the amazing thing. And, and he does give the little caveat there, except for the one who's already betrayed me. Right? Except for Judas, he's already betrayed me. And, and the reason that's there is twofold. One is to show we knew it's coming and it's part of God's plan. It's okay. It's not okay for Judas, but it's okay. And secondly, to say, I want these 11 guys to stay true to my name. Here's the amazing thing. After the resurrection of Christ, all 11 of those guys died for their faith. And every one of them was true to his name till the day they died. John's the only one that didn't die directly because of his faith, but his entire life he lived. After this, on the on the run, under persecution, in exile, in prison, or being tortured for his faith. Every one of them. One of the strongest evidences for the truth of the resurrection of Christ is that psychologists say that people will die for something they think is true, but is not. But nobody will die for something they know is false. All 11 of those guys died because they knew it was true. Not one of them, as the blade was about to come down, or the nails were about to be driven, or they were about to be burned, said, it's all a lie. They stayed true to the name. And then he prays, sanctify them. 
What that basically means is, at its most basic level, is that it's an adjective for God even. Uh, the holy is an adjective for God. And sanctify means to make them holy. That He is distinct, separate. Um, that's why the angels say, holy, holy, holy. Uh, people and things that are reserved to Him are so holy, are called holy, and they ought to be, um, whether it's the things in the altar around the temple or whether it's the people that He's called out, the idea is that we are reserved for the duty of God. In fact, the idea behind that is that we follow the Lord completely as He develops us and that He gives us a mission to accomplish in the world. And that sometimes we'll follow blindly, but we just keep following. I was reading this week a, a, a book by Tim Keller called King's Cross. And I just started it, and it's good so far. I don't know if it's good the rest of the way. But it, it's an interesting discussion of um, the book of Mark. He takes the whole book of Mark in about uh, 250 pages, writes about the book of Mark. And he told this, this story, and I just want to read it to you because I think it's interesting when you put together that we're called on a mission and that he's praying for protection for these guys, what, what it's like sometimes to follow the Lord. Um, he talks about this story from 150 years ago by George MacDonald. It's a children's book called The Princess and the Goblin. And the main character is a girl named Irene, and she's eight years old. And she uh, found an attic in her house one day, and every so often her fairy godmother appears there in the story. When Irene goes to look for her, she's often not there. So one day her, uh, one day her fairy godmother uh, gives her a ring with a thread tied to it leading to a little ball of thread. And she explains it, uh, that she'll keep the ball. And she says, I can't see it. She goes, no, the thread's too fine for you to see it. You can only feel it. And she said, now listen, if you ever find yourself in danger, take off your ring, put it under the pillow of your bed, then take your forefinger and feel the thread and follow wherever it leads. Oh, will that lead me to you? Yes, but remember, it may seem like a roundabout way but you must not doubt the thread. Of one thing you may be sure, that while you hold it, I hold it too. A few days later, Irene's in bed and the goblins get in the house. She hears them snarling in the hallway, but she has the presence of mind to take off her ring, put it under the pillow, and she begins to feel the thread. Knowing that it's going to take her to her grandmother and to safety, to her dismay, it takes her outside, and she realizes she's taking her right towards the cave where the goblins live. Inside the cave, the thread leads up to a great heap of stones, a dead end. And the thought struck her that at least she could follow the thread backwards and get out. But instant she tried to feel it backwards, it had vanished. It seemed that the grandmother's thread only worked going forward. Irene was about to burst into a wailing cry, but she realized that the only way to follow the thread was to tear down the wall of stones. So she began to tear down stone by stone and her fingers are bleeding and she pulls and pulls. And she hears a voice and it's her best friend, Curdie, who's been trapped in the cave. Why did you ever come here? And Irene replies that her grandmother sent her and I think I found out why. And after Irene followed the thread and removed the rocks to create an opening, Curdie started to climb up out of the cave, but Irene kept going deeper and Curdie says, what are you going? That's not the way out. That's where I couldn't get out. I know. She said, but this is the way my thread goes. And no matter where it leads, I must follow. In the end of the story, the thread proved trustworthy because the grandmother was trustworthy. When Jesus said to the disciples, you're getting ready to have some trouble. 
he basically gave him a thread and said, now follow it forward, never backwards. And you just keep going. And it's trustworthy because I am. This is what Keller writes. Follow me, Jesus says. I'm going to take you on a journey, and I don't want you to turn to the left or to the right. I want you to put me first. I want you to keep trusting me, to stick with me, not turn back, not give up. Turn to me in all the disappointments and injustices that will happen. I'm going to take you to places that will make you say, why in the world are you taking me there? Even then, I want you to trust me. The path Jesus takes you on may look like it's taking you to one dead end after another. Nevertheless, the thread does not work in reverse. If you just obey Jesus and follow it forward, it will do its work. He says an interesting thing in here. He says that these people that are following him are no longer a part of this world. In fact, he says, they're not any more of this world than I am. And the truth is, when you become a believer in Jesus, your citizenship changes to a heavenly realm. And on this journey through, we just simply have to follow the thread. Now here's the last thing he does. This is the most unbelievable thing for me. His last few moments on the earth, he spends time with his friends and he begins to pray. He prays for himself. He prays for the Lord to glorify him. He prays for his closest friends. And then he prays for us. In his last moments on earth, Jesus prays for us. It says in here, my prayer is not just for these guys alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. And what he basically says is, my prayer is that these people that come afterwards will be united to one another as they seek to serve you. Now here's the key element in there. Because there are lots of ideas about there how you get unified. The truth is that the only way to be in complete unity is to be focused around the same thing. It was A.W. Tozer that once said that a hundred pianos tuned to the same tuning fork are tuned to one another. Now, I don't understand music a lot. This is what I understand about that. If you have a central guide and you're all in line with it, then you're all in line with one another. And what it says here is, I pray that they will know and be a part of us, that they will seek us, our relationship, who we are. And in doing that, it will bring them closer together than they've ever been. He he says this in verse 25. He uses one of these compound words of, of father, again, this righteous father, this perfect father, this completely right father. He says, they don't know who you are, but I do. And here's the thing. What he's saying is, even after my death and resurrection and I leave and all these people begin to believe, we're going to continue to make you known in order that your love for me may be in them and I may be in them. The whole idea of the end of of this part of the fourth gospel of John's gospel is that we are to be a part of telling people about this loving, amazing, wonderful God. And then as we do that, the Lord will bring us together.
It just blows my mind. It just blows my mind that on that Thursday night before he was crucified on Friday, that I was on the mind of the Lord before the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of the world. That he cared about us. So next week is Holy Week, and we think about these things. Just think about what the Lord has done for you. Next Wednesday, we're going to talk about the cross and the death of God and what that means for you and me.